Um, I'm happy to uh, welcome, uh, you know, electronically welcome Jean Goodwin to our colloquium. Uh, Professor Goodwin got her JD from, university, from the University of Chicago and her PhD in communication arts uh, from the rhetoric program at uh, UW-Madison. Um, she's also been an integral member and co-PI um, on the Ag Biofuse uh, PhD fellowship program. Um, I learned, I got to know Jean a lot better riding around in vans uh, in Eastern North Carolina during the summer course uh, this past uh, past year. Um, and she's uh, also teaches in the um, public engagement course uh, that's a part of the Ag Biofuse uh, curriculum. Um, so, um, so she's an you know she's an obvious person to talk uh, to the GES crew and then uh, via the colloquium. And uh, we're very happy to have her here today to talk about um, scientists' responsibilities in the public sphere. So with that, I'll I'll hand the mic over uh, to you, Jean. Great, thank you very much, Zach. Um, I've started my video, so I don't know whether you guys can see me up in the corner or whether yes, I'm the just a voice. Oh, okay, cool. Um, yeah, I really appreciate the invitation to be here at this uh, challenging moment. I had a couple of ideas about what to talk on, but honestly, uh, most everything has faded into the background. Um, but luckily, some of the things that are happening in terms of science communication uh, around the coronavirus are actually worth paying attention to. And some of them are happening, although it's happening very fast, some of them are actually worth looking at right now. So my talk is on scientists' responsibilities in the public sphere. I was a little hesitant with that title because I think it's going to cause misunderstanding. So I'm, I'm I may be disappointing a lot of you. Um, uh, so let me start by kind of explaining what the title means and therefore what I'm about here. So um, the standard um, thing that we often think about with scientists' responsibilities in the public sphere, I think that uh, when people uh, go out and say, okay, that's what I'm going to talk about. Probably what you were expecting was some kind of sermon about the importance of science in this moment and the need for all scientists to uh, man the barricades and work hard and get science out there. Now, I actually, I agree with that sentiment, but I also think that the sermon is a little bit unnecessary because um, that is widely thought. Um, that kind of sermon is often followed up then by the next step, which is to then explain uh, how to use some specific medium, how to carry out some specific communication task, whether it's giving a public presentation, designing a web page, going on Twitter and spreading the word that way, through museums, with kids, facing off against denialists. Um, there's a long list of tasks. So Ordinarily, when we talk about science communication, there is this kind of pattern. Uh, scientists ought to do it or ought to do it more, and here's how they ought to go about it. I mean, I am not alone among science communication researchers in starting to find that basic pattern um, to be limiting and even a little tiresome, because it seems to overlook what many science psychom uh, researchers think, which is that there is a broad middle ground that scientists need to do that is getting overlooked. So in between your original thought, oh, I ought to do something, and the detailed uh, task of setting down and you know, making the YouTube video and uh, learning all those skills, in between those two realms, there is this broad realm of thinking about what you're doing. Why are you doing it? Why is what you're gonna do why do you think it's going to be successful? What kind of impacts do you think it's going to have? Um, various researchers in science communication have been focusing on this middle ground and talking about it in various ways. And my particular preference for talking about it is talking about responsibilities. So to me, the central question um, that anyone that any scientist that's interested in communicating uh, to broader publics, particularly in the public sphere, that kind of wild west where anybody gets to say anything, there's no rules, there's rough conditions of equality where everyone can intervene and have their say. Um, when you're out there in that kind of wild west space, um, what as a scientist are you willing to take responsibility for? 
That to me is the question that I would, um, that I think is central to science communication practice right now. And it's the one that I'd like to talk about today. And to do that, I do wanna use a, a case study from the immediate situation, which is the great face mask debate of 2020. Um, started in maybe early March and ended, probably ended um, last week sometime, or maybe it ended yesterday, we'll, we'll find out. Um, and so within this debate, I want to ask, as a scientist, uh, and I'm going to give you a certain point of view or some knowledge, uh, what are you willing to take responsibility for in this debate? So let's start. Everybody is presumably at a computer, so um, get your uh, web browser going. Go to pollev.com slash public science. And, um, Check all that apply. I'm interested in what people know about the debate. So are you guys seeing this okay? Yes, we see it. Uh, where's the address? Ah, okay, oh, I see good. at the bottom. At the bottom, you can see the address, the URL. Oh, down at the, yeah, okay. So the URL is pollev.com slash public science. Hmm. Dean, if you can, do you, if you have that link handy, if you just put it in the chat box, it might be easier for people to click on it. Okay. Eli yeah, unfortunately, I can't it. get to the I can't get to the chat box. Um, Eli just posted it for for. Everybody. Oh, okay, great. Thanks, yeah. Eli. I see when I go when I go to it, I see opinion polls. Oh, never mind. Okay, so it looks like pretty much everybody's heard of the debate and has both has participated in it both by seeking out information and by um, taking a viewpoint. Wait, now we're getting a lot of people that haven't heard of the debate. Um, nine people found face masks, including me. I have some old dust. I found two old dust masks. Uh, three people tried to buy and nine people have actually worn face masks in public. Hmm. We got a chunk of donators, some people that have made it and other people that have made a face mask. As have I, I made my first face mask the other day. Okay, so in general, we can say that um, people, the audience of us seems to be fairly well engaged with this debate. Okay. Hey Todd, can you, um, can you unshare the screen? I'm kind of locked in the poll everywhere is kind of taken over and I can't get back to the oh, wait, here's a pause here. Okay. I don't have control over that on my end, Gene. There you go. Or ah, there we go. I just I just did that. Thanks. So. Okay, and now let me get the share back. Okay, so a brief history of the debate. Um, the original position was that uh, ordinary people such as ourselves should not buy masks uh, for the obvious reason that there's already a shortage for healthcare workers, but furthermore, that the masks would be ineffective even if we had them. That by mid-March, that position was being extensively criticized online and in traditional media. The Czech Republic had a, um, if, if, you've been in, if you've been watching this debate, you'll have heard the story of the Czech Republic created 10 million masks homemade within two days. Everybody's wearing a mask and they haven't had any, they've had very limited rate of infection. Um, uh, 
Zeynep Tufetsky, uh, who is a uh, data scientist at UNC, published a New York Times editorial predicting that uh, there was no way that masks could be forbidden. And on Twitter and elsewhere, there was quite a lot of discussion. Masks for all peaked, uh, had a strong peak at the end of March in terms of uh, indicating a lot of interest. And that's just one of a half dozen possible, uh, possible Twitter handles. Uh, as you know, the CDC last weekend said, changed its mind, said, okay, we can all wear masks. And, but um, that probably has ended the debate. However, there is possibilities for continuance. Many experts believe that the masks are at, at minimum useless and possibly um, bad because they can, if, uh, if people mishandle them, then they're gonna actually spread infection. And of course, our president has the capacity to continue to politicize any issue, including perhaps uh, the wearing of masks. All right, for the purpose of this case study, I'm gonna appoint you to be the authors of this study. Uh, came out a half dozen years ago and is basically the only study that tests, has tested homemade masks against surgical masks extensively in kind of real world contexts. You, uh, you as authors did this study, you were curious, uh, you realized that if there was a pandemic, people would be using homemade masks. And so the question is, what can they do? So you tested, of, um, you made a design for homemade masks, you tested various materials for how much, what kind of particles they lit through and how breathable they would be. You tested uh, the design for fit and comfort, uh, both technical fit where apparently you wave your head around in all sorts of different ways and see whether the mask is leaking and also just people's perceived comfort. You had people cough through the mask and see what came out. As you admitted, this study has all sorts of limitations. Uh, for instance, everybody that you were testing was well, so they didn't really have a lot of bacteria to spray around with the cough test. And your conclusion was that the mass did show some benefits on, homemade mass did show some benefits on some of these tests, but that they, uh, they really performed pretty poorly and they should be considered only as a last resort to prevent droplet transmission from infected individuals. And they probably didn't have any protective effect in terms of preventing you from um, getting disease transmitted from somewhere else. In the, in the half dozen years since you wrote this article, it's only been cited by three people. So it was a nice article, but like most articles, kind of overlooked. Until last month. Um, it now has an outmetric that would have last year put it in the top 100 articles of any type in the world. Uh, abstract views are above 100,000 in one month uh, in March. And the version of the paper, that, and that's the abstract views are on the uh, journal site itself. On the ResearchGate site where the paper is available, the paper has gotten over 1 million reads. So you suddenly now have, a, have the opportunity perhaps to communicate um, your expertise to the public on an issue that they appear to be quite interested in. So that's my second question for you. Um, as the, uh, one of the authors of this uh, article, testing the efficacy of homemade masks, what are you gonna do now? What are you willing to go out in public and take responsibility for? Um, I'm gonna send you off into groups uh, and uh, then ask you to talk for like four minutes and um, then come back and uh, report your results through this poll everywhere, the next poll everywhere. So appoint one or more of your members to enter your results here and then you can all upvote it. Okay, breakout rooms. I'm gonna, you should be in a five person breakout room starting right now, it'll be exciting. Okay. Um, so, um, uh, continue to put your put your answers there and feel free to upvote them. Um, what I want to do now is step back and look at the debate itself and see if understanding the nature of the debate, and this is a fairly typical debate in the public sphere, helps uh, helps you locate what you're willing to take responsibility for. Looking at the kinds of ways that the science is already circulating in the debate, even without your intervention, and then uh, go through some of the options that 
uh, have been taken by scientists in the debate already that you might consider as something that you're willing to take responsibility for as well. All right, so what is a typical debate like? And we can see many of the typical debate features in this particular debate. Um, one aspect is that uh, in general, there's kind of like two forms of talk or two flavors of talk in the public sphere. We can have talk that's centered around issues or talk that's centered around problems. If we have problem-oriented talk, then we have a rough agreement amongst ourselves that there's something that we all wanna pursue. So we have an agreement about goals, an agreement about what it would mean to achieve that goal, what the metrics are that we might measure progress. Um, the mass debate has a big aspect that's like that. There is a lot of enthusiasm out there about making mass. Uh, there's a commitment to make 100 million. That's a standard figure. It started at 10 million or 1 million, but it's gone up to 100 million. And then there's a lot of discussion about what design, what materials will work. And there's, um, there's hundreds and hundreds of variations out there already about mass design and mass materials. That's problem-oriented discourse. In addition, there's issue-oriented discourse. Um, issue-oriented discourse, there is no basis of agreement. There's no starting point. There's no consensus. So it's disagreement all the way down. People don't agree about the goals. They would frame the situation in a completely different way. They would apply different values. What one person would think is success, the other person would consider a total disaster. And the general, um, the controversy over whether masks are effective and whether we should be encouraged to use them is of that kind. Um, the two sides um, aren't even, they don't, um, they aren't even able to come up with uh, common agreement about what a mass, what effectiveness would, um, what would effectiveness be for a homemade mask? All right, so um, what kind of participation you're willing to do might depend on whether you wanna intervene more on the issue side or more on the problem side of this particular debate. Another thing that's out there that you'll have to deal with as a scientist is the existence of public knowledge. That is what everybody knows, what everybody counts on everyone else knowing. And in this debate, one prominent piece of public knowledge is that masks protect. Um, we've known that for a long time, both real and imagined plagues, people are portrayed as wearing masks. Um, there must be some purpose to this. We can infer, I mean, why are, why are they wearing masks? It must be doing something. They must be protecting something somehow wearing these masks. So this is something that just everybody knows. Um, another common characteristic that's really well on display in this debate is that uh, uh, debates are passionate. They engage um, people's passions. Uh, every debate, uh, has the potential to turn into a debate about how we wanna to live together at all. Who's good and who's bad? Who's helpful and who's harming? Uh, it's very difficult to maintain debates just at a kind of technical level. We always are driven to debate um, how we wanna organize society at all. Uh, Tufekci's um, had a Twitter storm after her article where she continued to post kind of daily thoughts, um, getting angrier and angrier with every day as uh, the government and the uh, experts continued to resist her suggestion that we all should be wearing masks. All right, and she's a professor. This debate actually first came to my attention when a student um, asked in my uh, science communication class when we were, I asked her a um, technical question about a course concept and she gave me back a two paragraph screed about how bad it is that people would think about wearing masks. So. Um, there is a lot of passion connected with these issues. Finally, um, as, as uh, one of you pointed out in your, in your uh, small group work, uh, whatever you say is going to be, put you in certain relationships with basically everybody else in the debate, which is pretty much everybody in, um, that's connected with social media right now. So if uh, Jeremy, Mass for All Howard, who appears to be some kind of influencer out of Silicon Valley and the self-proclaimed leader of the Mass for All movement, if you, if you uh, take him off, he might unleash his minions on you. Um, 
if you challenge what the CDC says, you might be right, but you're also undermining the credibility of a of a agency that we really need to be trusted. And you're actually entering into some kind of relationship with uh, Shirley Stanley, who lives here in the Mordecai community, who has uh, had contact with your article. And if you say something, she's going to have some opinion of you. So most of the debates, uh, most of the arguments in the mass debate actually have nothing to do with science at all. They have a lot to do with how humans are going to respond to masks um, and what it's going to do to human life. Like, is wearing masks going to stigmatize? If we make only sick people wear masks, is that going to stigmatize them? Are ordinary people capable of learning how to use masks correctly? Will masks drive more face touching? Will it drive hoarding behavior? Will it drive risky behaviors, like um, some kind of moral hazard argument? So this is all about what humans are gonna do. And we're really unpredictable in part because we can be affected by the debate. However, there is some science that is already circulating out there. So you should see uh, what it's like before you decide how science is being treated in the debate before you intervene. And here too, science is being treated in a manner that's pretty typical of how it's treated in public debates. For one thing, you're going to experience the fact that lots and lots of people in the debate are going to claim expertise, uh, roughly the same expertise that you would like to claim. So here's Ms. Stanley. She was disturbed at a discussion on next door about everybody was getting enthusiastic about making masks. And she comes in and says, as a medical person, she has a lot of suspicions of this and then goes and argues them in detail for like four or five paragraphs. So you're not gonna be the only expert out there. Ms. Stanley is also gonna claim expertise. Um, you're gonna encounter the fact that bits and pieces of science get loose and circulate, maybe without their original meaning. Um, in response to Shirley, one of her, uh, her neighbors posts a long, uh, she engages in a long discussion with one of her neighbors about whether mass, uh, homemade masks work, where the neighbor comes up and guess what? Uh, your table one data is there. It's been modified somewhat. Some of the terms have been changed and the percentages have seemed to shift. So there's probably a couple of sources in between your original article and the um, Shirley Stanley's neighbor. But um, there's already a lot of uh, quasi information floating out there that people are actively using in constructing their arguments. And then finally, one standard use of science is I'd say just as a club. Um, you, you make your arguments and then you have a list of, of articles. This has been very um, uh, kind of standard thing to do in all the coronavirus debates is to have say your say and then here's some studies. Uh, presumably they agree with me, although it's not quite clear that anybody is uh, anybody's reading them. And guess what? Your study is in there, which is why it's had a million views in the last uh, in the last month. Okay, so whatever you want to do, your strategy is going to have to kind of stand up in this context. You're going to have to figure out whether you're contributing it to help resolve an issue or solve the problem. Um, are you in competition with what is public knowledge and is probably not going to be able to be moved, at least on a short-term basis? Uh, what kind of passions are you going to be getting yourself involved with? What kind of uh, reputational consequences for yourself and for others? Uh, how are you going to deal with competing claims of expertise? Can you say something that is going to resist being pulled into pieces and circulated in, in ways that may not, for instance, reflect the limitations of the study? And can you resist being turned into a club that people beat each other with? So um, what can you take responsibility for? Here are some things that, uh, that people, including in this case you, have have been trying to do, uh, here are some things that scientists have been trying to do within the context of the mask debate. So one basic one would be to uh, take responsibility for making your publication to be open access uh, so that at a minimum, it has the potential to make positive contributions to the debate as a whole. Of course, this also is what allows it to circulate, start circulating in pieces and having allowing people to use it as a club. So the strategy, all these strategies, none of them are going to be without some kind of pro-con or some kind of balancing and trade-offs needed. Somebody, I, um, 
Disaster Medicine is not a open access journal. So at some point, somebody paid or released this article to open access. My suspicion is that happened within the last uh, couple of months. Uh, many journals have opened their coronavirus coverage to, uh, to, the, um, to allow it to be seen by the world. All right. Um, another thing you might do is take responsibility for doing more research. Like, you know the best, the limitations of your previous study, maybe you can quickly update it with a new mass design or different mass materials or different tests or with, a, with some tiny particle that resembles the coronavirus more than the ones that you used. There's been, there's at least two or three teams that have been rushing through to do some types of mass testing, particularly on materials, including one from an, a team led by an anesthesiologist at uh, Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center tested a bunch of actual current uh, homemade designs um, and found that quilting cotton is the best, just in case you needed to know that. So you might take that strategy as well. Um, you could take the strategy of answering questions. Uh, people like may hit your article or may be involved in making a mask and they find that you exist and so they send you questions. And, Apparently that's actually happened to the authors of the article because they've put online a, a three or four page fact where they answer the questions that they've been getting from the public. If you take a look at this, you'll see that a lot of times the answers are gonna be kind of disappointing to the person who would ask the questions. Um, can you tell us specifically what fabrics you tested? Uh, no, <laughs> we can't because we were just, like this was the first time anybody had done this. So we just used what were commonly available materials and they weren't really trying to find out what was the optimum material. So um, they just raided their, their kitchens and got out their tea towels and tested some. There was, I mean, uh, the authors are able to clear up what a tea towel is. Uh, it's a dishcloth, although that leaves open the question whether American dishcloths and British tea towels really are relevantly similar. The key question a lot of people wanna know though is, uh, hey, I have this fabric, is that gonna work? What do you think? And you'll notice that the uh, authors uh, can only say, we cannot advise on this. The most common uh, way to take responsibility for answering questions is of course to work with the media who are uh, society's appointed question askers and um, the, our, Neighbors over at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center uh, did that in a New York Times article, for instance, explaining how to test mask fabric for usability, you look through it. So in addition to just directly answering questions, the more likely way that you could take responsibility for answering questions would be to um, aggressively work with uh, media who ask you the questions and then um, amplify your answers to their audiences. Okay, so going public, um, doing more research, answering questions. You could, um, in the issue aspect of the debate, go out and take a position and advocate for it. Uh, I, having t um, I've chatted with uh, university communications about this, uh, whether we should be, uh, whether they should be focusing on this issue and putting out some of the NC State expertise on materials, including textiles and non-wovens in particular. And um, they report to me that many experts are very skeptical that homemade masks really do anything. Uh, there's a lot of ways, once they get damp due to the fact that you're breathing through them, they become basically uh, totally permeable to particles of all sizes. Uh, just from many experts' point of view, it's really still not a good idea, despite the uh, public enthusiasm for it. And a group, uh, uh, a group based in Chicago and University of Minnesota have actually come out with a opinion piece that says exactly that in great detail. So you could decide to become an advocate. Um, your article supports some use of masks, but then it's also very skeptical, so you might be able to take either side in that debate. Um, you could uh, skip the skip the issue part, skip the controversy, and just solve the problem by uh, using your judgment to figure out the most appropriate design for a face mask and uh, and push it out. 
So this, both the CDC and the, and the um, Surgeon General have now issued official mask designs that presumably we can count on to be, if not optimal, at least workable. Um, or you could serve a little bit more behind the scenes role and take responsibility for advising on possible solutions. So there's an open source design movement that is attempting to collect designs for all sorts of COVID related uh, equipment, including, you know, um, different, any kind of machinery, gowns. And one of the things they're collecting designs are um, designs for our masks. And they have a med they've formed a medical review team of some sort and they get the masks, they get the mask pattern, they um, have it reviewed by the medical team and then push it out. So you could be volunteer to be on this uh, medical review team um, or some similar entity where you're reviewing, you're not coming up with the perfect design or even attempting to do that, you're um, advising on the consequences of what other people are doing. Uh, this is gonna require you to work probably in a team because peer review is best done uh, plurally, and it's gonna require you to work with a group of designers, that is the people that are trying to solve the problem, and you are there giving um, a particular science view, and they're there to handle all sorts of other problems, like how easy is it to make and distribute, um, are the materials even available? You can like not have to deal with that. Okay, so you could take responsibility for advising. Um, or finally, and this is something that so far no scientists in this debate have done, uh, but it's been up to people like Ed Young, science journalists, is to synthesize all of the, all of the competing science and all of the competing options and try to put that all together and lay it out in a way that's useful to ordinary folks. So this isn't about kind of holding on to some little corner of the debate or saying what, uh, um, how to make a mask or that masks are good or bad, but it's to encourage um, more critical thinking among a broader segment of people by synthesizing the pros and the cons, looking at all the different materials and the evidence uh, for and against them. In other contexts, scientists do this quite a lot, that they haven't really been on the front lines uh, with the mass debate. It's only been three weeks, so that's not really a big surprise. Okay, so that is what the context of a public debate is like. It's passionate, reputations are on the line, um, public knowledge is out there, people are gonna be making expertise and taking science, breaking it into the bits that they like and using it as clubs to hit each other. Um, you have uh, a series of options of things you could take responsibility for, opening, opening up your science, just making it public, uh, doing more research, answering questions, advocating, making authoritative pronouncements, advising groups that are trying to solve problems and uh, possibly synthesizing what's out there in the science and, and representing it for public consumption. So what are you willing to take responsibility for? And now I will stop and invite you all to talk. So now you can, uh, now you can raise your hands and one of my colleagues will call on you. So just to remind everyone, um, if you click the little hand uh, feature, it will put a hand up next to you and we will then uh, unmute you. <coughs> um, so while we're waiting for hands to get raised, uh, Gina, I had a sort of general question for you. Yep. Sort of in this midst of kind of a, a health um, crisis, do you think that the advent of social media is, is a is making things worse or better in terms of being able to put out, you know, accurate information that people need to follow? Yeah, I'm not sure. How would you measure that? Like better or worse? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not sure. I mean, it, I'm just, you know, based on what you were talking about, what I found really fascinating, you know, this fact that you can go on to Twitter and sort of you're already in a tribe of your own in a way like, you know, we're getting so much information. Is that actually making things worse? Or is it better that you have 
options to go to different information. I don't know how you would compare it per se, but I was just curious on your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, I, um, okay, so to me, the, what social media has done is it allows us to listen more. I think that around any event, there's always going to be an enormous amount of talk. But now we can actually listen to the talk of people quite different from us, which would be harder to do when we were only talking with our neighbors. Um, so I'm not sure that the amount of misinformation or information on the positive side is going to be bigger. Um, I mean, it does a lot of national coordination, for better or worse, um, more quickly. So I think of um, I think of the social media aspect as actually allowing things to be studied more easily. But I'm a little I think I'm a little conservative about whether or not it's actually changed the nature of public debate. Great, thanks. All right, Elizabeth, uh, go ahead. Jean, thank you. I really enjoyed this. Um, my question is um, whether you see your your general advice for scientists shifting at all in the age of Trump. Um, hmm, yeah. Uh, you know, for scientists, maybe not. Uh, Trump does, Trump is an extremely polarizing figure on purpose. I mean, that's, that's his main political strategy. And so he has the ability to polarize any issue, even issues of overriding common importance. Uh, it looks like, um, so early on when the, early on, as, as long as maybe three weeks ago, um, there was some evidence of Democrat, Republican, or conservative progressive split on um, opinions on how serious the coronavirus crisis was. Um, that, that seems to have faded. And so um, this debate at least is not currently, in my perception, it's not really tribalized. And the mass debate, I don't think was really tribalized at all. Although that could change with Trump's declaration that he's not gonna wear a mask. Um, so for this debate, I don't think that it has that much, um, I don't think the presence or absence of Trump, luckily, um, has much real significance. Um, the real debate, the one that, the mass debate is, an, is almost fun to study because it is relatively minor. The real debate, which we'll be facing soon, is how do we get out of quarantine? What are the conditions that allow us to restart the economy? And that's going to be a, um, a serious controversy, raising many of the very deep divides within our society about, um, you know, about whether government or markets should be more in charge of making decisions. Um, and that one then has the uh, capacity to become tribalized, and in which case Trump's ability to further tribalize is going to uh, be prominent, and scientists will have to think fairly carefully about that. But I'm not sure that there's going to be that much. Well, we'll see. Um, I'm not sure that science really has an enormous role in that debate. But we're going to find out um, over the next month. That would be my guess. Uh, Jason, go ahead. Thanks. Uh, Gene, that was a really great talk. And I just want to compliment you for providing a really nice framework that's, um, I think, more sophisticated than uh, Roger Pilkey's Honest Broker framework for thinking about the roles of, of scientists um, in the face of decision-making. So I think it's it's a really nice set of options. My it question is, for you. you notice that it is, um, to those of you that know Pilkey, this is, this, uh, this is roughly the same terrain that he's covering. Mm -hmm. So. But so, my, question, my question for you is, um, so your list of options, I mean, one way to take them is, is just, well, what are you going to do next? Um, and so I'm interested in your choice of the word responsibility instead of just what, what you're going to do next. Um, how, how is this list of things about responsibility and not just choices for action? Um, yeah, I'd be content with choices for action too, but when you act, you take responsibility for what you're doing, right? If you hit somebody, you're responsible for the consequences, the harm that you're creating. So focusing on the responsibilities, 
I think is encouragement to think about um, not just what you're doing, which could become a technical question like open, oh, I'm gonna do open research. Well, there's three different models, which should I choose? But really to think um, what's gonna happen when I do this? What, what kind of changes in the world am I making? Am I willing to live with the consequences of those changes? So, um, and I mean, for instance, answering questions, that sounds really easy, but then you realize when you hold yourself open to answering questions and people start asking you things, but then you keep saying, I don't know, not enough evidence, we're uncertain about that. You're kind of, I mean, you volunteered to answer questions and now you're being completely uninformative to the poor people that are asking you things. You've kind of failed. And so if you know you're not gonna, if you don't feel comfortable making, um, going out on a limb a little bit maybe to answer a question, um, is, will silk fabric work? No, it won't. Instead of saying, well, there's some evidence that it won't work, but I could still be wrong. Um, so focusing on responsibilities encourages scientists not to get involved with the technical issues of what they're gonna do or how they're gonna do it, not to really focus even on the impacts that they're gonna have, like, oh, I'm, I wanna persuade other people or I wanna smash misinformation, but really think about um, themselves and what they're uh, capable of doing for other people. Um, so it's one of several proposals that I, I said at the beginning is um, inhabit this space in between wanting to do science communication and the technicalities of doing science communication. Other, other possibilities are um, the concept of objective, like what are your objectives? What is your role? I kind of like responsibilities. But yeah, good question. Gene, uh, go ahead. Uh, nope, nothing's happening. I am trying to unmute her. <laughs> there we go. Okay, there we go. Yeah, uh, great, great talk, Gene, uh, and it's interesting to take the surveys and participate as part of this group. I'm thinking about myself and how I've been reacting and trying to respond to this outbreak. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I see myself as kind of synthesizing and advising just through my own social media networks. I, I tend to be reading some of the technical papers and posting them out there on how the virus is transmitted and where it came from and how it's spreading. And I think I guess I think by doing that, that I'm helping people understand a little bit more about how it's transmitted so they will wear face masks. So maybe I'm advocating too, you know, because I've posted some links on how to make face masks from uh, vintage handkerchiefs or, you know, on your table there on the different kinds of fabrics is very interesting because there's some data there showing some are better than others. And my stepdaughter is also a respiratory therapist up at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm hearing from her about the shortages of the masks. So yeah. there's this need out there and people are home there. They want to feel like they're under control somehow. So by making masks, it's almost like the victory gardens of World War II. It's like people are rising to the challenge of doing something when they really can't do a whole lot. So, you know, there's some psychological reasons why people are doing what they're doing, I think, as well. Um, yeah, so I hear two things. Um, the second one is, uh, I agree. I think that uh, um, it was almost inevitable that this debate was going to end with us making masks, because all, for all sorts of psychological and cultural reasons, it gives people something to do. Um, it allows them to display pro-social behavior, making masks, giving them to people that need them, wearing them yourself is a way, yeah, we're pulling together, right? Um, and uh, it, it gives sense of autonomy or self-efficacy, which is a really a basic human need. If it's with American pragmatism, you know, can do culture, let's make something or fix something. So it was, I think it was, um, millions of masks were made before the debate ended. I mean, people were gonna do this. The question is, does it have more than that kind of social value or psychological value? And I think the science is a little hesitant on that. Um, okay, so that's the second one, yeah. 
that's one of the reasons that debate only lasted three weeks was because the answer was kind of clear from the beginning, but it was fun to have the debate um, in the meantime. The other one was you acting as the kind of advisor and synthesizer. Um, I think the synthesis role, uh, which you're doing like for your, for your small circle is a vital one. If one of the problems with the way that science currently circulates in the public sphere is that it's torn into little bits and like the little bits circulate without the broader context, without any limitations. If you package things um, into a synthesis, you're kind of resisting that, right? So people can't just cherry pick the data that they already agree with. They have to, they, you expose them to a broader range of views and um, allow them to kind of think through it. So it's an excellent role. It's an excellent role to perform. Uh, it's a lot of work. Um, so that's the downside. And it can be hard to get a hearing for it. Um, advocates tend to be loud. Synthesizers, um, like why should we trust your synthesis? So you're doing it with your friends and neighbors. They trust you. Um, if you put it up on the web, you probably, you it may not, if you just put like blogged it or something, it might not get quite the same um, amount of notice. Ed Young, Atlantic, well-established science journalists can can do something that maybe most of us could not do. Mm -hmm. but yeah, good luck. Keep going. Is that me? Um, so thank you again, Jean. Um, I did. I had a question, sort of on on that idea of, I guess, synthesizers. Um, in a sense, so I've, I've seen, um, of course, you're giving this talk. Jennifer had a blog post on the GES site. Yep. Uh, and Sheila Jasanoff had, uh, I forget where it was published, but she had an interview. Um, so in terms of, I guess, STS practitioners, um, do they have sort of a parallel set or a different set of parameters for responsibilities and choices they can make in terms of uh, trying to improve the response or guide the response or alter the social discourse around the response um, that, that you see in this framework? Um, yeah, I wouldn't think that, I mean, to, um, I phrase this in terms of these are options scientists should take, but it really just is options that experts can take. Uh, and there's, and there are others. This is just a limited set that happened that are, these are prominent ones and they came up very quickly in this debate, but there's other roles as well. I have noticed, I haven't read the Jasanoff piece yet. So that's, a, I'll have to look for that. A couple other major STS people have put out things recently, including Latour, um, Sarowitz and Funtowitz and Ravetz have also used coronavirus. And I would say the ones that, um, in all those, in for Latour, uh, Rabbits, and um, Sterowitz, what they've mostly done is taken the coronavirus uh, uh, crisis as a way to say, I was right all along, and people should finally start listening to my theories, which I'm not sure is a very um, great contribution to the public debate. Uh, people are more taking this opportunity to um, raise questions within their discipline. like. This is the way that we should be thinking about science policy interface or science society interface. See, I'm right. Yeah. We needed post-normal science all along. Um, <laughs> so that might be, yet. that's another role. Maybe it's, maybe it's prophesying. Mm. But thanks for the tip about Jasanoff. I'll have to find that. Um, I put the link in the chats. Okay, great. All right, we have time for maybe one more question if anyone has one. Um, in the meantime, I added a link in the chat as well. There's going to be a um, another webinar, um, I think it's Thursday or I think it's Friday, um, that Duke Science and Society is putting on um, around communication issues. Um, so if people are interested in this topic, uh, check out that link um, and um, you can get more information there. Um, any other questions? John's got one. I saw John Godwin looked like. I don't know if his hand went down. Uh, yeah, I wasn't sure, actually. Oh, looks like I can't unmute myself. 
No, we can hear you, John. You have okay. <laughs> I just got a message that it's a non-host. I can't unmute myself. Um, yeah, um, I was just thinking about, and this may just be wishful thinking, but is there any way that you could prepare ahead of time for something like this? Which, because you know, we'll probably see it again. Unfortunately, it's, we just don't know when. I'm almost thinking of like a rapid response communications team or something. Oh yeah, maybe we have in the agencies. I'm sure, that's been evident. So, okay, so um, they haven't. Uh, okay, CDC has a risk communication arm, and they know how to do risk communication. They haven't been. Their voice has not been very prominent. But if you listen to the um, the uh, the state level, our um, Mandy Cohen, if you've seen her. Um, she's our state level public health official. She has clearly been trained on the CDC's model and does it extraordinarily well. So yes, there is a capacity uh, for doing, it is possible to build capacity in institutions for doing several of these strategies um, in advance. At the national level, those the capacity exists, but like many national capacities, it has not really um, been wisely used at this point. So yes, yeah, go for it. Thank you. <laughs> okay, I was it was uh, pretty weird talking to y'all with no uh, with no uh, faces. <laughs> you can blame that on the Zoom bombing. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, there are some people are now popping up, but um, so Jane, I just wanted to thank you again for doing this. This was this was this was great, awesome, and, and really interesting. Um, I want to let everyone know next week um, we have Margot Bagley from Emory University. Um, she's a law professor, and she's going to be talking about um, the sort of issues around digital sequence information. Um, and sort of the IP issues and other privacy concerns and issues around access and benefit sharing. So please um, join us for that. Um, and if you anyone had any sort of issues or concerns with the new way that we have you entering the colloquium, please send me an email. Um, as we've been saying each week, we're, we're learning as we're going. Um, so please send me any uh, sort of issues or comments or suggestions on how to improve this. Um, but with that, um, I want to thank everyone. Stay safe. Um, maybe go make some masks um, or not. Um, and we'll see you next week.